Welcome to the FDD Events Podcast. I'm Cliff Mate, founder and president of FDD. I'm pleased to share with you the following conversation. Please subscribe, rate, and review the podcast so you don't miss out on future FDD events. Good morning. It's Wednesday, February 7th. The war in the Middle East is now 124 days old. I'm Jonathan Shanzer, Senior Vice President for Research at Foundation for Defense of Democracies, and welcome back to the FDD Morning Brief. My battle to stay on top of the news is real. My inbox is a disaster, and I need an entire day to deal with my WhatsApps. But I am committed to this thing we do here. The FDD Morning Brief has become a part of my routine. I'm glad it's a part of yours. So keep coming back, and I'll keep dishing it out three times a week. In a few minutes, we'll hear from Amichai Stein, diplomatic correspondent at Israel's Channel 11, or Khan, which is Israel's public broadcaster. Amichai used to be a swamp creature in Washington, where he reported on our crazy political scene to Israelis. We'll talk, we'll talk to him soon about the latest out of Israel on a possible hostage deal. But first, it's time to talk about other people's money, specifically Hamas's money. The IDF has revealed some interesting things about Hamas finance in recent days. And as you know, this is not just a hobby for me. This was my day job at Treasury for a few years. So let's review what we know. First, the Israelis found an underground vault with hundreds of thousands of Israeli shekels in cash. They also found millions of dollars in bearer bonds. Yes, yes, just like the movie in Die Hard. Except here's the thing, bearer bonds are outlawed in the United States. They have been for decades because of how easily they can be used in illicit activity. So I wanna know who is still producing these and getting them into the hands of Hamas. More on that for another time, perhaps. The IDF also revealed yesterday that it uncovered evidence showing $150 million in transfers from Iran to Hamas over the last couple of years. There was also proof of another $5 million sent by Iran for Yahya Sinwar's personal slush fund. But what got my attention here was not the amounts. We know that Iran gives Hamas more than $200 million per year. What is important here is that the Israelis can now see the origins of those transfers and their destinations. They can follow the money. This concrete information will probably lead to additional asset freezes. We can also say with certainty that this is just one more way that the Israelis are closing in on Hamas in recent weeks. And there's been another bit of evidence collected by the Israelis during this war, and I'm talking here about the so-called Qatari embassy that was captured near the Shifa hospital in Gaza City during the first few weeks of the war. If the Qataris left any documents or computers in that building, my guess is that they now have shed additional light on Hamas finance. Remember, the Qataris were dishing out about $30 million per month to Hamas before this war began. You know, it's funny, but people often say that countering illicit finance is a way of fighting terrorism without all the shooting. That's not always the case. We see here that with the Israelis, they are literally risking their lives to get their hands on these documents and financial instruments. So we'll soon see, hopefully, how that information is used. Oh, and by the way, the Iranians and the Qataris are not the only ones to have their finances revealed here. Hamas has enjoyed financial support from the Turks, the Malaysians, the Algerians, and the Kuwaitis, to name a few. So I hope that the Israelis share their best stuff with the U.S. Treasury. From there, maybe we'll see some new sanctions handed down. I'd like to see a change in policy that leads to punishing these terror financiers. Dare to dream. Now for your headlines. 
Headline one, Amos Hochstein, the U.S. Special Envoy for Lebanon, says that progress is being made to push Hezbollah fighters away from the Israeli border. I hope he's right, because at the same time that his statement came out, the Lebanese foreign minister announced that Lebanon did not support pushing Hezbollah above the Latani River. To me, this only reinforced that the U.S. policy of trying to distinguish between Hezbollah and the Lebanese government is pure folly. I'm not saying that everybody in the Lebanese government is a terrorist, but I am saying that the government of Lebanon has been severely compromised by Hezbollah over the years. That said, it is still in Hezbollah's interest to move north of the Latani River, which runs laterally across the Middle East. This is mandated in UN Security Council Resolution 1701, and I hope that Hochstein's diplomacy prevails. The French are also doing what they can, but we must all be aware that this is postponing the inevitable. I'll say it again, Hezbollah exists to fight Israel. At some point, Israel will need to oblige. Headline two, U.S. forces continue to come under fire in the Middle East. Here's what we know. At least three different attacks have been reported in recent days, one on February 3rd on a base in Syria, another drone attack on February 4th targeting the Omar oil field. That attack killed some of our Kurdish allies. And then another on February 5th with a rocket attack that led to no injuries or damage, thankfully. All in all, U.S. troops have been attacked 169 times in Iraq, Syria, and Jordan since October, and that doesn't include any of the mayhem caused by the Houthis. I think it's safe to say that the American response so far has not reestablished deterrence with Iran or its terror proxies. So it's time to start thinking more seriously about what will convince the regime to stand down, because this clearly cannot continue. And headline three, the new president of Argentina visited Israel yesterday and announced that he will move his country's embassy to Jerusalem. He has quite a look, Javier Millet, the long mutton chops and mop on top. I don't think I could pull that off. But for reasons I don't fully understand, he has made support for Israel a key pillar of his foreign policy. And that's a far cry from Christina Kirchner, who ruled Argentina from 2007 until 2015. Back then, she posted a rant on Facebook slamming FDD for its Latin America research examining Argentina's relationship with Iran. In fact, Kirchner was president when prosecutor Alberto Nisman was brutally murdered while investigating the government's ties to the Islamic Republic. My colleague Toby Dershowitz continues to do excellent work on that. Latin America remains a problem. The tri-border area where Argentina, Brazil, and Paraguay meet is still a zone of illicit financial activity for Hezbollah and Iran. They have teamed up with the narco kingpins. This affords them the ability to move cash and weapons to the Middle East and beyond. Let's hope the new government in Argentina starts tackling this. Okay, I'm now pleased to introduce you to Amichai Stein. He works for Israel's national broadcaster, Khan 11. He used to be based in Washington. Now he's in the eye of the storm, tracking the latest out of Israel. And today I've asked him to come on the FDD Morning Brief to talk to us about the latest on a hostage deal. Welcome, Amichai. Thank you very much. Good morning in DC. Good afternoon in Israel. All right. Well, I mean, we, we, let me start off with some of the tough news. We heard yesterday that uh, some 30 Israeli hostages, I think it was 31 total now, um, have been declared dead by the Israeli government based on intelligence that they have. Do we know what happened? Were they killed while they were in Hamas custody in Gaza? Were they killed on 10-7? What, what's the latest? I, I will tell you the truth. 
in some cases we know the reason and in some other cases we don't know the reason but in my point of view we shouldn't go into it because at the end these are people who got killed and murdered because Hamas kidnapped them and attacked Israel so the reason of the death is that's critical and it's not a question really why were they killed was it an Israeli airstrike or did Hamas actively murder them at the end these are people that were murdered because Hamas attacked Israel and kidnapped them and took them into Gaza. So I think the question, we shouldn't talk about the reasons too much because let's say it might even give Hamas some kind of legitimacy to say things that we don't want to hear and are not really the truth. The fact is these people were killed because at the end Hamas attacked Israel on October 7th. Agreed. Uh, certainly, the, the Hamas has used uh, Israeli actions and words against it over time. And of course, the families, by and large, have been uh, quite supportive of the IDF, even as the uh, the news has trickled out. Um, let's talk about some of the potential good news. And I'll just underscore potential because this is still very much uh, in progress. But what is the latest deal that has been put on the table by the Qataris and the Egyptians on behalf of Hamas uh, for a, a hostage exchange? So I'll give a small brief what's the basic deal, and then I'll go into the pro problems. So the basic deal talks about the first stage in which the women, children, the elderly, and the sick will be released. We're talking about maybe a 44, 45 days pause. Okay, the numbers, again, between about 40 hostages. Um, there is a question whether the Israeli female soldiers will be included in this phase, this is one issue that is being debated. The second phase we're talking about will be uh, the Israeli soldiers, but Hamas category of Israeli soldiers is much bigger than people who are actively in the military, meaning all men under 60 in Hamas view are Israeli military personnel, meaning all the men under 60 will be on the second phase. Um, and there's a third phase that is supposed to talk about the bodies of the hostages being returned. Now, let's talk about what happened yesterday. Hamas gave a response, first of all, saying, um, when we begin the first stage, we don't need to cease, or, or meaning, sorry, we don't need an Israeli promise that Israel will cease the war at the end, but we do need, of course, Israel will cease activity. We need Israel to go out for the main population areas. And the numbers of uh, prisoners of the terrorists they want to be released is just staggering. Again, according to their answer, they want all the women, uh, children, elderly are over 50 and the sick, and plus 1,500 other prisoners, including several hundreds that are. Um, serving life in prison, meaning these are numbers that no Israeli government can agree on. Even I think Gantz and Eisenkot, uh, these are numbers that Israel just can't agree. So what I'm hearing from Israeli officials that the, the Israeli response will be discussed in the next few days. It won't probably be a no answer, meaning let's throw away this negotiation. It probably will be no, but let's continue talking, okay? And let's say there's A, B, and C, which are a non-starter. Uh, on D, E, and F, we can talk maybe to find some solution. So that's the idea of where we are going in the next few days, probably. 
if up until now we waited for Hamas response, now we are waiting for the Israeli response on Hamas response. And that's, this means that in any case, any hostage deal will take weeks to, to be formulated. Yeah, I think that's right. I think it's going to require a lot of patience. And of course, that is something that the hostage families don't have. If you could maybe talk for just a minute about the role of those hostage families, they play a significant role right now in the dialogue that takes place on your channel, as well as all the other channels. They appear prominently in political discussions. How are they influencing the way that Israelis are engaging here with the Qataris and the Egyptians and Hamas itself? So I think they do have a lot of influence because um, you're hearing their stories, you're hearing what people have been in, held by captives by Hamas. So it does influence Israelis when it comes to the question, do we need a hostage deal? But I think still, when you look about the numbers, um, the question is what kind of deal? And when it comes to what kind of deal, there is still um, a vast majority of Israeli public who are saying, it's not any deal, meaning there is a deal we would agree on, but it's not any deal we would agree on. And so so it does influence and it does help. By the way, there are hostage families will, which we are less hearing the voice who are saying, guys, we are not agreeing for this deal. Don't do it. Don't do it. It will endanger other Israelis. At the end, you will maybe release hostages, but other Israelis will get killed and kidnapped and the 7th of October will be once again. So you do have about, let's say, 10 to 20 families of hostages who, who are saying these kind of things, but you're less hearing them in the Israeli mainstream media. Mainly you hear the voice saying, guys, we've been there. We know what is to be there. Get them out at any price. But again, most of these are public. And even let's say, again, other voices in the government, like Gantz and Eisenkot, are saying maybe Israel needs to pay more. But for example, no one of them is agreeing to stop the war completely in a hostage deal. Yeah, I think that's for sure. But I mean, let, let, let's talk about this for a minute. I mean, the, the numbers of hostages now, unfortunately, there's, I think, maybe about 100 um, that are believed to still be alive, maybe. And you know, at the same time, you have a war that's going on that needs to probably wrap up sooner rather than later because of American pressure, international pressure, legal pressure, all of the things that have been put on Israel's back since this thing began. And so what's the calculus here? I mean, you know, can uh, the entire country of 10 million people um, I mean, uh, are their needs, their security needs going to be held up because of these 100 people? I know there is obviously great pain. There is a great desire to bring everyone home. And of course, that is the refrain that we hear in Israel all the time. But the, I, I would argue that, that the strategic needs of Israel are much bigger than that um, and much more complex than just simply bringing them home. How does that play in politics? How does that play in security? I, I will phrase maybe the situation that this is a different war than what we've been used to. Because the question at the end is not what Netanyahu will say regarding if it's safe to go back or if the war is ended or Gantz or Galant. The question at the end, will the head of the villages of the South, these communities say, okay, we feel safe to go back. So even if Netanyahu comes and say, let's say one day, 
okay, we feel we uh, Hamas is broken, Hamas is destroyed. Still, the question is, will these villages agree to go back? Will people agree to go back to their homes? And if they say, no, we don't feel safe, then there's a question, what do you do? Or do you need to do more? Or maybe the leadership is lying that it's safe to go. And that's, I think, the different story. By the way, it's not only in the South. It's going to be also in the North. You will hear probably statesmen say, okay, Hezbollah has gone away from the border. We have more forces. Guys from Kiryat Shmona, for example, it's safe to come back. But but if Kiryat Shmona mayor says, I'm not going to tell my guys to come back to the North, then the situation still exists. So, so I think the question at the end regarding if Israel has won, if Israel has beaten Hamas, if the area is safe, is, is the status quo changed, is what the settlements, what these villages in the south and in the north will say. And of course, there's a lot of politics and a lot of debates in the military and the uh, 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 leadership. But, but at the end, I think this is the focus we always need to remember, that this is the question, will people feel safe to live on the southern border and in the northern border? If not, the situation haven't, hasn't been resolved. It has not. Uh, that is for sure. Just a, a question on strategy. I mean, one of the things that always strikes me is that, you know, everyone knows in the Middle East that Israel is willing to do unbelievable things to get its people back, dead or alive. Do you think this is ultimately Israel's Achilles heel? I mean, is, is, isn't this what prompted Hamas to kidnap 240 people on uh, on October 7th, they know that they will get things in return, don't they? Yeah, uh, this is the Israeli Achilles heel saying, we won't leave anyone uh, uh, behind. And by the way, again, this story is, again, much more different because we're talking here of a lot of citizens who were kidnapped. It's not a war when soldiers are being held captive. So you have soldiers, but there's a lot of citizens. And, and again, you know, Israel is or I think any country is responsible for the citizens itself to bring them back and that any foreign army or terrorist group won't hurt the citizens. Again, military is also not something you want to see being held captive, but, but the citizens are a different story. So I think this is why the story is right now different. And by the way, that's why the focus is mainly right now on the citizens, on the people who, who who lived in the area and were kidnapped. And the soldiers are left, unfortunately, for the last step because th th this is the situation of doubt. But again, if Israel uh, wouldn't have cared about the hostages, of course, things would have looked completely different uh, in this war. But, you know, Israel is a country who says, I will do everything or try to do at least everything I can not everything, everything I can um, to bring uh, my people back. So so that's the story right now. Okay, we'll leave it there. Thank you, Amichai Stein from Channel 11, Khan News in Israel. Thank you for joining us today. Thank you very much. Okay, here's what FTD is tracking today. My colleague Saeed Ghassaminejad is out with a new piece analyzing bipartisan congressional efforts to enforce U.S. sanctions on Iranian oil. The Biden administration's deliberate non-enforcement of sanctions has yielded Iran tens of billions of additional dollars in oil income. And the president has the authority to enforce oil sanctions already on the books, so this is just a matter of will. 
It is good, though, to see bipartisan members of Congress engaged here. My colleague Cleo Pascal, she testified before the Canadian Parliament at its China committee this week. She outlined the ways in which the Canadian government can counter the Chinese Communist Party's unrestricted warfare efforts in the Indo-Pacific and beyond. Whether the Trudeau government heeds her advice, well, that's another story. And finally, my colleague Seth Fransman has been reporting from the ground in Israel. His latest piece for FTD's Long War Journal highlights the recent comments from the Israeli war cabinet on where the war may be headed next. There's some optimism lately on the progress in Gaza, as we just heard, and not surprisingly, some words of warning about what comes next in the north. That's it for today's show. Read our expert analysis on our website, FDD.org. Read our quick takes on X at FDD and support our work with a tax-deductible donation at FDD.org slash invest. Thank you for joining us today. I'll see you bright and early on Friday for another episode. Until then, I'm Jonathan Shanzer, signing off for FDD. Mm -hmm.